the arrangement of Old Testament books is not strictly chronological. That is to say, they are not set consecutively in every case in order of time. For example, if you look in your Old Testament, you will discover that the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther appear toward the close of the first half. But in historical sequence, they are right at the end, right at the very end of the Old Testament age, belonging to the era after the captivity, when some of the Jews returned from the time of exile in Babylon. To this period belong also the prophecies of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So we might say their placement, in fact, corresponds to their setting in history. We find them, after all, at the very end of the Old Testament. We have the prophecy of Isaiah before, or Zechariah before us this evening. The tone of Zechariah's prophecy is one of encouragement. It was given to a people who were discouraged. And it aimed at curing that discouragement by focusing their attention on the glory of God. The prophet had a twofold objective. First, to inspire the remnant to continue the rebuilding of the temple and to see that task through to completion. Second, to give some insight concerning God's future program and to show that the people of his day were an important part of God's ultimate purpose, a glorious purpose, not only for Israel, but for the Gentile world as well. And so it can be no surprise to us that Zechariah has more messianic predictions than any other minor prophet, dwelling more on the person and the work of Christ and making frequent reference to the first and the second advents of the Messiah, in whom the glory of the Lord will reach its zenith. My text for this evening is found in the fifth of eight night visions given to the prophet Zechariah. I want to direct your thoughts in particular to the question that is set before us at the outset of the verse 10. So Zechariah chapter 4 and the verse 10 and the verse begins with these words, For who hath despised the day of small things? Who hath despised the day of small things? Please remember the backdrop to these words. The remnant struggling to complete their building project with sustained opposition and with significant obstacles, some haunted by 
lingering memories of past glories and of how things were before. And into this difficult and depressing situation, there comes a word from the Lord. And I want to emphasize to you this evening that this is the source of the word now spoken. It's a word from the Lord. We read in the verse 8 just prior to our text, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying... So what Zechariah is now communicating is a word from the Lord. Surely this is a word not just for that little band all of those years ago. Let it be a word for us right here on this day facing the circumstances that are before us in these times. Now I want you to think about the words of the text, the words of this question. And as we look at it tonight, I want to draw your attention to three things. First of all, we have here what I will call a truthful description. A truthful description. You'll notice that the question makes reference to the day of small things. The day of small things. We must acknowledge that on many levels and in many ways, that is a truthful description of how things are in the work of God. The day of small things. This is so in God's work generally. We look around us in the modern world and we are compelled to acknowledge that the cause of the gospel is not taking ground in the way that it has done in other times. Despite great toil, despite a multitude of high-tech resources, despite concerted endeavor, there is limited success. Indeed, we might say very limited success. And so today, if commentators speak of the advance of religion, almost inevitably they refer to Islam, not Christianity. And of course, there is the added pressure of a resurgent atheism and the ever-present curse of materialism. My friends, this is the nature of the world in which we live and labor right now. And of course, we might take it further. We might say tonight that we live in a day of small things denominationally. Well, there are encouragements beyond our own province we are not seeing the free church take great strides in this realm. New congregations are, it seems, a thing of the past. We are no longer witnessing any great influx of people. Mostly we hold what we have. And we are thankful for it. And of course the truth that we live in a day of small things, comes home to us with particular resonance locally. We cannot draw conclusions without making particular application to our own surroundings. Now, I confess to you this evening, I cannot speak 
with any particular knowledge in relation to how things are in this place, in this town, and the hinterland around and about. But it may be that you would say to me, our numbers are small, very much smaller than they have been in the past. And therefore, as a result of that, our resources are limited and we are often stretched as we seek to do the work of God. And if that's where you are tonight, then, of course, you are not alone. Far from it. Many face the same challenges, but it will be natural. It could not be otherwise. It will be natural that we are more tuned in to the reality of the situation in our own circumstances. I wonder, dear child of God, is that how you analyze things right now, just where you are? This is a day, a day of small things. I wonder if there is yet another thought as we reflect upon the words of the question now, that this is for some a day of small things personally. Personally. That is to say in terms of their own spiritual experience. That they're not progressing in the Christian life as once they were. That in fact there has been a going back. Oh, tonight if the Lord were to come and really have us search our hearts, in fact if he were to come and do the searching himself, would we be compelled to draw such a conclusion? Is it a possibility that for us personally, in the matter of our relationship with the Lord, this is a day of small things? Is it possible that some in this gathering tonight have lost out in this matter and they are hardly aware of it? You ever think of that? Losing out with the Lord and yet being hardly aware of it. Because you're going through the motions and you're doing things that you have done throughout the entire span of your Christian experience. But if the truth be told, you have lost out with the Lord. I think of that rather chilling description given of Israel back in one of the earlier minor prophets, the little book of Hosea, the chapter 7. And here we have the Lord indicting the people of Ephraim. He says in Hosea 7, 9, Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth not. There's been a decline. There's been a falling away. And it's not recognized. Is that a possibility? Is it a possibility in your life, my friend? So we have a truthful description here, do we not? The day the day of small things. But let me have you consider the text again. And let me suggest to you that we also have here a typical reaction. A typical reaction. The question is, for who hath despised the day of small things? 
Take note of that word, despised. In the original, the Hebrew word means to be openly contemptuous or to mock. It is both tempting and typical for some to react to a day of small things in the work of God in just this way. Certainly we will not be surprised if the man of the world, the enemy of the gospel, should react in a scornful and dismissive fashion. We see that happening all around us and there's nothing new about it. Man of the world looks upon the church and there is the feeling, I have no doubt, in many minds and hearts that it's almost as if it's just a charade. Just playing at religion. No substance, no reality. I take you to the book of Nehemiah. Maybe you're familiar with the wonderful work that was done by Nehemiah and those who stood with him in the aftermath of the captives or some of the captives returning from Babylon. And of course, there's a parallel here with some of the historical detail that we have in Zechariah's prophecy. But Nehemiah chapter 4 begins with the words, It came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren with the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. And Nehemiah's reaction to that, he says, Hear, O God, for we are despised. There's the word again. We are despised. Turn their reproach upon their own head and give them for a prey in the land of captivity. We can identify with that, can't we? We are despised. People point the finger at us and they say to us or they wonder, what are they doing? What's it all for? These people who go along to their meetings, who organize this and organize that, what's it all for? It's small fry in the grand scale of things. And that's the kind of thing we expect from those out there in the world. But the question, the question of our text is addressed to the people of God, to some amongst the Jews who were tempted to look upon the work that was even then in progress with disdain and to despise it. And yes, I'm saying to you tonight that this is not uncommon in God's people. Regrettable, certainly, but a feeling that is often evident. We look at certain things that are going on in the work of God, and we deem them to be small things. And the temptation is that we despise them. They are of no account in our eyes. And there's nothing new in this either. If you think about many of the 
stories that are given to us in the Scripture, many of the episodes that are brought to our notice. I was thinking the other day of the experience of uh, David going out to fight against Goliath, the giant. You remember, of course, the attitude of Goliath when this young shepherd boy stood in front of him. And we have the words there in 1 Samuel 17, the verse 42, when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. It's almost as if Goliath is saying, Are you mocking me? Sending out this boy. And that's what we see, of course, around us. But I remind you that when we look at this episode, we're not just dealing with what the enemy was saying or thinking. Because if you go back a little earlier in the story, uh, look back beginning there at the verse 28, Eliab, his eldest brother, the eldest brother of David, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. What are you doing here? You're wasting your time coming here. Get back to those sheep. Though he was despised, just a boy. Then, of course, we have Saul's verdict. If you jump ahead a few verses more and look at uh, the words of Saul in verse 33, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. These are meant to be those on the same side as David. And they despised him. They despised him. We get right back to the time and the circumstances before us in the prophecy of Zechariah because the history of this period is detailed first in the book of Ezra. And if we jump back to that for a moment, Ezra, and the chapter 3, if we break in there reading just at verse 10, Ezra 3.10 says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers, who were ancient men, that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice. And many shouted for joy. Notice the reference there to their weeping. And the fact that those who wept are identified. We're told that they were the people who had experience of what had happened in the past. Now you compare that with the prophecy of Haggai, just a couple of pages back from where we are in Zechariah. Haggai chapter 2 and the words of the verse 3 
the challenging question here from the prophet, who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? You see, their view of things was being colored by the remembrance of what things had been like before. Their memory of past glory was causing them to despise present work. Maybe some couldn't get away from those days in the distant past. And that prompted them to look at what was being done there and then in the wrong way. And to this day, my friends, to this day, God's people are apt to despise the small things. Especially if what they see does not match the recollection of past blessings. Why do people... God's people react in this way. I believe it is because of some fundamental misunderstandings. They fail to recognize certain principles or they forget what they have been taught. First, they lose sight of the fact that small things may ultimately become great things. We're talking about the day of small things. But I'm saying to you tonight, small things may ultimately become great things. That is so in the natural realm. And that it is so is a truth employed by the Lord Jesus Christ to teach spiritual lessons. You ever noticed how the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry very often drew attention to the small things? The seeds that are sown. And by and by they grow and they thrive and they bear fruit and they become something very significant. You look at the parables. You look at the teaching of Christ. Small things may become great things. Some time ago I was giving a little children's message to some of the children in the congregation, as is my want. And I was telling them the story of John Pemberton. Now, that may not be a name that is familiar to you. I'd be surprised if anyone has ever heard of John Pemberton. He was a pharmacist and a Confederate soldier in America in the 19th century. And having survived the Civil War in America, he went back to his pharmacy. One of the consequences of serving in that Civil War is that he was wounded, he bore the scars of battle, and he was greatly troubled by a particular wound. He became to some extent, a slave to morphine. And he wanted to be rid of that. And so he tried to discover some other kind of medication that would work for him and free him from bondage to that which he considered inappropriate. What did he come up with? He came up with a drink that is the forerunner 
of Coca-Cola. Today, the Coca-Cola company is among the top 30 companies in the world. It is reckoned to be worth an estimated $270 billion. And of course, we cannot reckon up how many cans of the stuff are sold day by day. And it all began with that gentleman whose name nobody knows and whose life and labors are long forgotten. You see, small things may become great things. Many great things start out small, and in despising some apparently insignificant and inconsequential thing, we may be despising the beginning of something great. You think about the Savior. You think about His beginning when He came into this world. You think about the circumstances of His birth. You think about the home into which He was born. You think about all of those things that were very ordinary and very mundane. And you think about the Lord of glory who came out of those ivory palaces into this world of woe. Small things becoming great. Second, of course, there is sometimes a forgetting that great movements are often made up of a vast number of small contributors of little account on their own, but together, we might say the cumulative effect. Things are brought together. It's a different story. When Paul wants to describe the church in his writings to the church at Corinth and also to the church at Rome, he uses the analogy of the human body. Wants to represent the church as a living, working, thriving organism. And so he uses the body. And in using that image, of course, he refers to the fact that there are various things that are notable about the body. There are parts of the body that we are all very familiar with. In 1 Corinthians 12 and Verse 12, he says, As the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. And then he goes on, and he talks about the value of particular members or parts of that body. And then he says this, 1 Corinthians 12, 19, If they were all one member, where were the body? And what he's saying there, if they were all the same, this was just a collection of parts that were exactly the same. How could you ever have a body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. He talks about those things that we don't think about at all. We pay no account to them. But they're important and they're valuable. And they have their place. Something small, lightly esteemed, barely noticed, may have a great significance and a vital role 
in the operation of a larger entity. And I'm saying to you tonight, that's exactly how it is in the church. Because great movements are often made up of a vast number of small contributors. Whatever you're doing in the work of God, whatever place you're occupying in the church of Christ, don't despise that. And by the same token, do not despise your brother who's sitting alongside you and laboring in the same cause. Though you may think that what he is doing is unimportant. And then, of course, there's another thought here. There is sometimes an ignoring of the fact that God has used small things to accomplish great purposes. Remember the story of Gideon going out to battle against the Midianites? The Lord determined that he would not give the victory with 30,000 or even 10, but with 300 men. We think about the even smaller band gathered in that upper room in Jerusalem. Just 120 disciples gathered there. And yet the Holy Spirit came upon those believers. And such was the impact of the Spirit's ministry in their lives that very soon the day of Pentecost came. And things were changed forever. You go right down through the history of the church, days of reformation, yes, days of revival. We are fond of referring to 1859, and it has a special resonance with us here in this land. We think about what happened in this province. We think about how all of that began in Kells, in that little schoolroom, in that small prayer meeting with just a handful of unknowns. But the Lord used small things to accomplish great purposes. And of course, he has reason to do that. And we think about those words that come at the end of Paul's first chapter in his letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians. The chapter 1, the verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and things which are despised have God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Because you see, this is not about us. It's not about any one of us. It's not about any individual believer or any collection of believers. It's about the Lord. It's about His glory. It's about His sovereign purpose. It's about His kingdom. Let me draw this to a close tonight. By mentioning finally here, there is a timely obligation. A timely obligation that this question found in our text is framed as it is, is meant to challenge us, to show us that we have no business despising the day of small things. For who hath despised the day of small things? 
meant to remind us that we are obligated to respond in a very different way at such a time. God wants us to know that his work will be done. I emphasize that to you this evening. The work of God will be done. No part of God's plan will fail. Because, dear believer, the God we worship and the God we serve is not in the business of failure. Whatever the Lord proposes will succeed. You read those words in verse 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. For who have despised the day of small things? They shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. With those seven they are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. You think this work has come to a standstill? We're not making progress. We're not going on as we went on before. But I'm telling you, the Lord says, this work has begun and this work will go on. And this work will be finished. Because the Lord is not in the business of failing. What are we to do, believer? What does God require of us in such times? Well, in a word, what the Lord requires of you is commitment. Commitment. We must commit to every task in God's work even though it be small. Nothing is unimportant in the service of God. Therefore, let us not despise the opportunities He has put in our hands. Whatever door the Lord has opened for you in service is a door He wants you to go through. And you can be sure that if the Lord has a work for you to do, that work is valuable. Because it is the Lord's. Then we must commit to God's work because it is viewed as small and because it needs our commitment. It's the easiest thing in the world to look to places and to periods where things were or are better. But tonight this is where we are. This is where you live. This is where you labor. This is where God has placed you. He has you here so that you might serve in this field. And we can look away to some other place. We can look away to some other time. The grass is always greener, isn't it? But we are where we are. And the Lord has a work for us to do. We we can't afford to rest on our laurels. We've got to get up and go on and seek to find a way for the gospel. And we must commit. We must commit to the work knowing that it is God's work and it is foolish to limit him. Look at verse 7 here. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain. We look around us. In the place where the Lord has put us. And we see mountains here and mountains there. How can we ever deal with those mountains? 
that those mountains can become plains in the purpose and by the power of God. And as the previous verse says, it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. It's not by collective or individual strength. It's by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And so we must look to Him. We must seek a fresh infilling of God, the Holy Spirit. We must reflect upon those who have gone before, those whom the Lord has been pleased to use. Recognize that they were so used of God because the Holy Spirit came and filled them and so equipped them for whatever task the Lord committed to their hands. So I say to you, child of God, as we look for the blessing of heaven, as we reach out to the Lord and implore Him to pour out revival blessings, let us right now not despise the day of small things. Let us not discourage those who are giving of their best. But let us rather come alongside them and stand with them, knowing that whatever the Lord has called us to be and to do is his way for us. And if we give ourselves to it, we please him, we honor him, we glorify him, and in his will, we prepare for the blessing of revival. May the Lord encourage our hearts, and may the Lord bless his word this evening. Let's bow in prayer, please. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the opportunity given us tonight to meditate upon thy word. We thank thee for the many encouragements that are found in scripture. We thank thee for what thy servant called the exceeding great and precious promises of the word. Thank thee tonight that we can lay hold of those promises. Help us to be everything we can be for the Lord right now. We know that things are not as we would wish them to be. We know that it is the temptation, indeed the tendency of our hearts to be discouraged and to look at what is going on and to despise the small steps that are being taken. But, O oh God, give us grace to go on, not to despise what the Lord is doing and not to step away from the work that he has committed to our hands. We say with one of old, wilt thou not revive us again, that we may rejoice in thee. Come to our hearts, O God, we pray. Lead us on after thee. Especially bless this work here. Be an encouragement to those who stand for the Lord in this congregation and in this community. And we pray that as far as this work is concerned, the best is yet to be. Hear prayer, Lord. May the blessing of the triune God be upon us now. The love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.